Book Four, Chapter Five of History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Guero. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Four, Chapter Five. Montezuma swears allegiance to Spain. Royal treasures their division, Christian worship in the Teocalli, discontents of the Aztecs. Cortes now felt his authority sufficiently assured to demand from Montezuma a formal recognition of the supremacy of the Spanish emperor. The Indian monarch had intimated his willingness to acquiesce in this on their very first interview. He did not object, therefore, to call together his principal caciques for the purpose. When they were assembled, he made them an address, briefly stating the object of the meeting. They were all acquainted, he said, with the ancient tradition, that the great being who had once ruled over the land had declared on his departure that he should return at some future time and resume his sway. That time had now arrived. The white man had come from the quarter where the sun rises, beyond the ocean, to which the good deity had withdrawn. They were sent by their master to reclaim the obedience of his ancient subjects. For himself he was ready to acknowledge his authority. "'You have been faithful vassals of mine,' continued Montezuma, "'during the many years that I have sat on the throne of my fathers. I now expect that you will show me this last act of obedience by acknowledging the great king beyond the waters to be your lord also, and that you will pay him tribute in the same manner as you have hitherto done to me.' As he concluded, his voice was stifled by his emotion, and the tears fell fast down his cheeks. His nobles, many of whom coming from a distance had not kept pace with the changes which had been going on in the capital, were filled with astonishment as they listened to his words and beheld the voluntary abasement of their master, whom they had hitherto reverenced as the omnipotent lord of Anahuac. They were the most affected, therefore, by the sight of his distress. His will, they told him, had always been their law. It should be now, and, if he thought the sovereign of the strangers was the ancient lord of their country, they were willing to acknowledge him as such still. The oaths of allegiance were then administered with all due solemnity, attested by the Spaniards present, and a full record of the proceedings was drawn up by the royal notary to be sent to Spain. There was something deeply touching in the ceremony by which an independent and absolute monarch, in obedience less to the dictates of fear than of conscience, thus relinquished his hereditary rights in favor of an unknown and mysterious power. It even moved those hard men who were thus unscrupulously availing themselves of the confiding ignorance of the natives, and though it was in the regular way of their own business, says an old chronicler, there was not a Spaniard who could look on the spectacle with a dry eye. The rumor of these strange proceedings was soon circulated through the capital and the country. Men read in them the finger of Providence. The ancient tradition of Quetzalcoatl was familiar to all, and where it had slept scarcely noticed in the memory, it was now revived with many exaggerated circumstances. It was said to be part of the tradition that the royal line of the Aztecs was to end with Montezuma, and his name, the literal signification of which is sad or angry lord, was construed into an omen of his evil destiny. Having thus secured this great feudatory to the crown of Castile, 
Cortez suggested that it would be well for the Aztec chiefs to send his sovereign such a gratuity as would conciliate his good will by convincing him of the loyalty of his new vassals. Montezuma consented that his collectors should visit the principal cities and provinces, attended by a number of Spaniards, to receive the customary tributes in the name of the Castilian sovereign. In a few weeks most of them returned, bringing back large quantities of gold and silver plate, rich stuffs, and the various commodities in which the taxes were usually paid. To this store Montezuma added, on his own account, the treasure of Oxyacotl, previously noticed, some part of which had been already given to the Spaniards. It was the fruit of long and careful hoarding, of extortion, it may be, by a prince who little dreamed of its final destination. When brought into the quarters, the gold alone was sufficient to make three great heaps. It consisted partly of native grains, part had been melted into bars, but the greatest portion was in utensils, and various kinds of ornaments and curious toys, together with imitations of birds, insects, or flowers, executed with uncommon truth and delicacy. There were also quantities of collars, bracelets, wands, fans, and other trinkets, in which the gold and feather-work were richly powdered with pearls and precious stones. Many of the articles were even more admirable for the workmanship than for the value of the materials. Such, indeed, if we may take the report of Cortes to one who would himself have soon an opportunity to judge of its veracity, and whom it would not be safe to trifle with, as no monarch in Europe could boast in his dominions. Magnificent as it was, Montezuma expressed his regret that the treasure was no larger. But he had diminished it, he said, by his former gifts to the white men. Take it, he added, Malinche, and let it be recorded in your annals that Montezuma sent his present to your master. The Spaniards gazed with greedy eyes on the display of riches, now their own, which far exceeded and hitherto seen in the new world, and fell nothing short of the El Dorado which their glowing imaginations had depicted. It may be that they felt somewhat rebuked by the contrast which their own avarice presented to the princely munificence of the barbarian chief. At least they seemed to testify their sense of his superiority by the respectful homage which they rendered him, as they poured forth the fullness of their gratitude. They were not so scrupulous, however, as to manifest any delicacy in appropriating to themselves the donative, a small part of which was to find its way into the royal coffers. They clamored loudly for an immediate division of the spoil, which the general would have postponed till the tributes from the remote provinces had been gathered in. The goldsmiths of Azcapotzalco were sent for to take in pieces the larger and coarser ornaments, leaving untouched those of more delicate workmanship. Three days were consumed in this labor, when the heaps of gold were cast into ingots, and stamped with the royal arms. Some difficulty occurred in the division of the treasure, from the want of weights which, strange as it appears, considering their advancement in the arts, were, as already observed, unknown to the Aztecs. The deficiency was soon supplied by the Spaniards, however, with scales and weights of their own manufacture, probably not the most exact. With the aid of these they ascertained the value of the royal fifth to be thirty-two thousand and four hundred pesos de oro. Diaz swells it to nearly four times that amount. But their desire of securing the emperor's favor makes it improbable that the Spaniards should have defrauded the exchequer of any part of its due, while as Cortes was responsible for the sum admitted in his letter, he would be still less likely to overstate it. His estimate may be received as the true one. 
the whole amounted therefore to one hundred and sixty-two thousand pesos de oro independently of the fine ornaments and jewelry the value of which cortez computes at five hundred thousand ducats more there were besides five hundred marks of silver chiefly in plate drinking-cups and other articles of luxury the inconsiderable quantity of the silver as compared with the gold forms a singular contrast to the relative proportions of the two metals since the occupation of the country by the europeans the whole amount of the treasure reduced to our own currency and making allowance for the change in the value of gold since the beginning of the sixteenth century was about six million three hundred thousand dollars or one million four hundred and seventeen thousand pounds sterling a sum large enough to show the incorrectness of the popular notion that little or no wealth was found in mexico it was indeed small in comparison with that obtained by the conquerors in peru but few european monarchs of that day could boast a larger treasure in their coffers many of them indeed could boast little or nothing in their coffers maximilian of germany and the more prudent ferdinand of spain left scarcely enough to defray their funeral expenses the division of the spoil was a work of some difficulty a perfectly equal division of it among the conquerors would have given them more than three thousand pounds sterling apiece a magnificent booty but one-fifth was to be deducted for the crown an equal portion was reserved for the general pursuant to the tenor of his commission a large sum was then allowed to indemnify him and the governor of cuba for the charges of the expedition and the loss of the fleet the garrison of veracruz was also to be provided for ample compensation was made to the principal cavaliers the cavalry arquebusiers and crossbowmen each received double pay so that when the turn of the common soldiers came there remained not more than a hundred pesos de oro for each a sum so insignificant in comparison with their expectations that several refused to accept it loud murmurs now rose among the men was it for this they said that we left our homes and families periled our lives submitted to fatigue and famine and all for so contemptible a pittance better to have stayed in cuba and contented ourselves with the gains of a safe and easy traffic when we gave up our share of the gold at vera cruz it was on the assurance that we should be amply requited in mexico we have indeed found the riches we expected but no sooner seen than they are snatched from us by the very men who pledged us their faith the malcontents even went so far as to accuse their leaders of appropriating to themselves several of the richest ornaments before the partition had been made an accusation that received some countenance from a dispute which arose between mexia the treasure for the crown and velasquez de leon a relation of the governor and a favorite of cortez the treasurer accused this cavalier of purloining certain pieces of plate before they were submitted to the royal stamp from words the parties came to blows they were good swordsmen several wounds were given on both sides and the affair might have ended fatally but for the interference of cortez who placed both under arrest he then used all his authority and insinuating eloquence to calm the passions of his men it was a delicate crisis he was sorry he said to see them so unmindful of the duty of loyal soldiers and cavaliers of the cross as to brawl like common banditti over their booty the division he assured them had been made on perfectly fair and equitable principles as to his own share it was no more than was warranted by his commission yet if they thought it too much he was willing to forego his just claims and divide with the poorest soldier gold however welcome was not the chief object of his ambition 
if it were theirs, they should still reflect that the present treasure was little in comparison with what awaited them hereafter. For had they not the whole country and its mines at their disposal? It was only necessary that they should not give an opening to the enemy, by their discord, to circumvent and to crush them. With these honeyed words, of which he had good store for all fitting occasions, says an old soldier, for whose benefit, in part, they were intended, he succeeded in calming the storm for the present, while in private he took more effectual means, by presents judiciously administered, to mitigate the discontents of the importunate and refractory. And, although there were a few of more tenacious temper, who treasured this in their memories against a future day, the troops soon returned to their usual subordination. This was one of those critical conjunctures which taxed all the address and personal authority of Cortez. He never shrunk from them, but on such occasions was true to himself. At Veracruz he had persuaded his followers to give up what was but the earnest of future gains. Here he persuaded them to relinquish these gains themselves. It was snatching the prey from the very jaws of the lion. Why did he not turn and rend them? To many of the soldiers, indeed, it mattered little whether their share of the booty were more or less. Gaming is a deep-rooted passion in the Spaniard, and the sudden acquisition of riches furnished both the means and the motive for its indulgence. Cards were easily made out of the old parchment drumheads, and in a few days most of the prize-money, obtained with so much toil and suffering, had changed hands, and many of the improvident soldiers closed the campaign as poor as they had commenced it. Others, it is true, more prudent, followed the example of their officers, who, with the aid of the royal jewellers, converted their gold into chains, services of plate, and other portable articles of ornament or use. Cortez seemed now to have accomplished the great objects of the expedition. The Indian monarch had declared himself the feudatory of the Spanish. His authority, his revenues, were at the disposal of the general. The conquest of Mexico seemed to be achieved, and that without a blow. But it was far from being achieved. One important step yet remained to be taken, towards which the Spaniards had hitherto made little progress, the conversion of the natives. With all the exertions of Father Olmedo, backed by the polemic talents of the general, neither Montezuma nor his subjects showed any disposition to abjure the faith of their fathers. The bloody exercises of their religion, on the contrary, were celebrated with all the usual circumstance and pomp of sacrifice before the eyes of the Spaniards. Unable further to endure these abominations, Cortes, attended by several of his cavaliers, waited on Montezuma. He told the emperor that the Christians could no longer consent to have the services of their religion shut up within the narrow walls of the garrison. They wished to spread its light far abroad, and to open to the people a full participation in the blessings of Christianity. For this purpose they requested that the great Teocalli should be delivered up, as a fit place where their worship might be conducted in the presence of the whole city. Montezuma listened to the proposal with visible consternation. Amidst all his troubles he had leaned for support on his own faith, and indeed it was in obedience to it that he had shown such deference to the Spaniards as the mysterious messenger predicted by the oracles. Why, said he, Malinche, why will you urge matters to an extremity? That must surely bring down the vengeance of our gods, and stir up an insurrection among my people, who will never endure this profanation of their temples. Cortes, seeing how greatly he was moved, made a sign to his officers to withdraw. 
When left alone with the interpreters, he told the emperor that he would use his influence to moderate the zeal of his followers, and persuade them to be contented with one of the sanctuaries of the Teocalli. If that were not granted, they should be obliged to take it by force, and to roll down the images of his false deities in the face of the city. We fear not for our lives, he added, for though our numbers are few, the arm of the true God is over us. Montezuma, much agitated, told him that he would confer with the priests. The result of the conference was favorable to the Spaniards, who were allowed to occupy one of the sanctuaries as a place of worship. The tidings spread great joy throughout the camp. They might now go forth in open day and publish their religion to the assembled capital. No time was lost in availing themselves of the permission. The sanctuary was cleansed of its disgusting impurities. An altar was raised, surmounted by a crucifix and the image of the Virgin. Instead of the golden jewels which blazed on the neighboring pagan shrine, its walls were decorated with fresh garlands of flowers, and an old soldier was stationed to watch over the chapel and guard it from intrusion. When these arrangements were completed, the whole army moved in solemn procession up the winding ascent of the pyramid. Entering the sanctuary and clustering around its portals, they listened reverently to the service of the mass as it was performed by the fathers Olmedo and Diaz and as the beautiful Te Deum rose towards heaven, Cortes and his soldiers, kneeling on the ground, with tears streaming from their eyes, poured forth their gratitude to the Almighty for this glorious triumph of the cross. It was a striking spectacle, that of these rude warriors lifting up their orisons on the summit of this mountain temple, in the very capital of heathendom, on the spot especially dedicated to its unhallowed mysteries, side by side the spaniard and the aztec knelt down in prayer and the christian hymn mingled its sweet tones of love and mercy with a wild chant raised by the indian priest in honor of the war-god of anahuac it was an unnatural union and could not long abide a nation will endure any outrage sooner than that on its religion this is an outrage both on its principles and its prejudices on the ideas instilled into it from childhood, which have strengthened with its growth until they become a part of its nature, which have to do with its highest interests here and with the dread hereafter. Any violence to the religious sentiment touches all alike, the old and the young, the rich and the poor, the noble and the plebeian. Above all, it touches the priests, whose personal consideration rests on that of their religion, and who, in a semi-similized state of society, usually hold an unbounded authority. Thus it was with the Brahmins of India, the Magi of Persia, the Roman Catholic clergy in the Dark Ages, the priests of ancient Egypt and Mexico. The people had borne with patience all the injuries and affronts hitherto put on them by the Spaniards. They had seen their sovereign dragged as a captive from his own palace, his ministers butchered before his eyes, his treasures seized and appropriated, himself in a manner deposed from his royal supremacy. All this they had seen without a struggle to prevent it. But the profanation of their temples touched a deeper feeling, of which the priesthood were not slow to take advantage. The first intimation of this change of feeling was gathered from Montezuma himself. Instead of his usual cheerfulness, he appeared grave and abstracted, and instead of seeking, as he was wont, the society of the Spaniards, seemed rather to shun it. It was noticed, too, that conferences were more frequent between him and the nobles, and especially the priests. His little page, 
Ortegilla, who had now picked up a tolerable acquaintance with the Aztec, contrary to Montezuma's usual practice, was not allowed to attend him at these meetings. These circumstances could not fail to awaken more uncomfortable apprehensions in the Spaniards. Not many days elapsed, however, before Cortes received an invitation, or rather a summons, from the emperor to attend him in his apartment. The general went with some feelings of anxiety and distrust, taking with him Olid, captain of the guard, and two or three other trusty cavaliers. Montezuma received them with cold civility, and turned to the general, told him that all his predictions had come to pass. The gods of his country had been offended by the violation of their temples. They had threatened the priests that they would forsake the city, if the sacrilegious strangers were not driven from it, or rather sacrificed on the altars in expiation of their crimes. The monarch assured the Christians it was from regard to their safety that he communicated this, and, if you have any regard for it yourselves, he concluded, you will leave the country without delay. I have only to raise my finger, and every Aztec in the land will rise in arms against you. There was no reason to doubt his sincerity. For Montezuma, whatever evils had been brought on him by the white men, held them in reverence as a race more highly gifted than his own, while for several, as we have seen, he had conceived an attachment, flowing, no doubt, from their personal attentions and deferences to himself. Cortes was too much master of his feelings to show how far he was startled by this intelligence. He replied with admirable coolness that he should regret much to leave the capital so precipitately, when he had no vessels to take him from the country. If it were not for this, there could be no obstacle to his leaving it at once. He should also regret another step to which he should be driven, if he quitted it under their circumstances, that of taking the emperor along with him. Montezuma was evidently troubled by this last suggestion. He inquired how long it would take to build the vessels, and finally consented to send a sufficient number of workmen to the coast, to act under the orders of the Spaniards. Meanwhile he would use his authority to restrain the impatience of the people, under the assurance that the white men would leave the land, when the means for it were provided. He kept his word. A large body of Aztec artisans left the capital with the most experienced Castilian shipbuilders, and, descending to Veracruz, began at once to fell the timber and build a sufficient number of ships to transport the Spaniards back to their own country. The work went forward with apparent alacrity, but those who had the direction of it, it is said, received private instructions from the general to interpose as many delays as possible, in hopes of receiving in the meantime such reinforcements from Europe as would enable him to maintain his ground. The whole aspect of things was now changed in the Castilian quarters. Instead of the security and repose in which the troops had of late indulged, they felt a gloomy apprehension of danger not the less oppressive to the spirits, that it was scarcely visible to the eye, like the faint speck just descried above the horizon, by the voyager in the tropics, to the common gaze seeming only a summer cloud, but which to the experienced mariner bodes the coming of the hurricane. Every precaution that prudence could devise was taken to meet it. The soldier, as he threw himself on his mats for repose, kept on his armor. He ate, drank, slept, with his weapons by his side. His horse stood ready caparisoned day and night, with a bridle hanging at the saddle-bow. The guns were carefully planted, so as to command the great avenues. The sentinels were doubled, and every man, of whatever rank, took his turn in mounting guard. The garrison was in a state of siege. 
Such was the uncomfortable position of the army when in the beginning of May 1520, six months after their arrival in the capital, tidings came from the coast, which gave greater alarm to Cortes than even the menaced insurrection of the Aztecs. End of Book 4, Chapter 5 Recording by Guero